Good evening. I'm Father Raymond Snyder, and I'm the Director of Campus Programs and Evangelization for the Thomistic Institute here in D.C. The Thomistic Institute, as many of you know already, is dedicated to promoting Catholic truth in the contemporary world, especially on college campuses, and with the special guidance and influence of St. Thomas Aquinas. So across the country, we have 25 different secular universities where students have started chapters of the Thomistic Institute. But here in D.C., our programming takes the form of a young adults chapter, uh, the chapter responsible for organizing this event tonight. For more information about the Thomistic Institute in general and also any of our calendar uh, information or recordings of past events, please visit our website at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you for joining us for the first of this lecture series on Christian literature entitled Finding God in the Modern World. We're very happy to be co-sponsoring this event with the Catholic Information Center, and we're very grateful for their hospitality here and welcoming us into this excellent venue here in the heart of the city. It's my privilege to introduce the speaker for tonight, Dr. Frederick or Fritz Bauerschmidt. He received a master's in divinity from Yale Divinity School, and his PhD from Duke University, writing his dissertation on Julian of Norwich under the direction of Stanley Hauerwas and Sarah Beckwith. He has taught theology at Loyola University, Maryland since 1994. He's also a permanent deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. He has several books and many articles in the areas of medieval theology, mysticism, and Thomas Aquinas, I just wanted to mention a few of his recent publications. In 2016, last year, Catholic Theology, an Introduction. He's a co-author of that with James Buckley from Oxford Press. And in 2013, he wrote Thomas Aquinas, Faith, Reason, and Following Christ. I also just want to mention an article of his, which the title I think is one of the best I've ever heard for an academic article. This is published in the Journal of Modern Theology. Shouting in the land of the heart of hearing, colon, on being a hillbilly Thomist. So I uh, recommend going to look that one up, uh, perhaps seeing what actually is contained there. But tonight, it's my privilege to introduce the title of his talk, speaking on Flannery O'Connor tonight. Large and startling figures, Flannery O'Connor's postmodern apologetic. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bauerschmidt. To have lost, I think you have my talk. <laughs> okay. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to get 45 minutes of me extemporizing, and that was not going to be pretty. Um, thank you to the Thomistic Institute and to the uh, Catholic Information Center for hosting this. Thank you all for coming. Um, so, the title of my talk tonight comes from a remark uh, made by Flannery O'Connor in one of her essays. Uh, She says, the novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him, and his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, 
you can relax a little and use a more normal way of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. Anyone who's read any of O'Connor's fiction will have a sense of what she means by large and startling figures. Hermaphrodite circus freaks, prosthetic-stealing Bible salesmen, atheist prophets, and so forth. Likewise, readers will know how she seeks to shock sweet or maybe not-so-sweet grandmothers are shot by serial killers, Arrogant young sophisticates contract illnesses that confine them for life to their childhood homes, and respectable land-owning white ladies get themselves gored in the chest by someone else's bull. Wikipedia notes, presumably for the sake of students searching for the meaning of that last story, some writers suggest that the bull symbolizes Christ. But O'Connor's reasons for populating her stories with such startling figures and such horrific plot turns might not be so apparent. Many of her initial readers mistook her for a nihilistic misanthrope who crafted the most unappealing possible characters and gave them the most horrible outcomes in order to reflect her dim view of humanity. But as O'Connor makes clear when speaking about her fiction, the large and startling figures serve as an attempt to speak as a Christian in a context in which we cannot presume a body of shared assumptions, a common commitment to unquestioned truths, even those of natural reason from which arguments could be constructed. In other words, She felt that she lived in a culture in which the only way to convey the truth was via what she called the shock of narratives that subvert the presumptions of their readers so as to open up new and unexpected kinds of truth. The culture that O'Connor sought to address is what we today sometimes call post-modernity, which already in the 1950s and 60s was stirring into consciousness and which O'Connor's sharp eye discerned. Despite the drastic cultural shifts of the past 50 years, I think O'Connor's writing retains its vitality and its relevance in part because it speaks precisely to an intellectual culture that still reigns dominant in our day. I believe it uncontroversial to say Mary Flannery O'Connor, born on the Feast of the Annunciation in 1925, is one of the preeminent 20th century American writers. Prior to her death from lupus at the age of 39, she produced a small but finely honed body of fiction, two novels and two collections of short stories, one of which appeared only posthumously. Um, The American Library collected works of O'Connor, which is not quite everything, but it's pretty close, is only about that thick. So you can become an expert over the summer. Not that that's what I did. but (laughs) Um, Largely confined by her illness to her mother's house for the last 13 years of her life, 
She was also a prodigious correspondent whose letters are equal to her fiction in their literary value. When they were published, I remember reading them thinking like, wow, I wish I had friends who wrote me letters like this. Um, and I also, anecdotally, I, I have friends who initially were found her fiction very, very off-putting, but were drawn in by her letters, which enhanced their appreciation of the fiction. So if you've tried O'Connor and it wasn't quite to your taste, try, try some of her letters, and you might find that more, more tasty. Uh, but my argument tonight is that she, in addition to being a great literary figure, is that she also suggests a way to offer a defense of the Christian faith in an age that rebels against the very idea of shared beliefs, even as it retains in fragmentary form values rooted in those beliefs. So first, I want to make a few remarks about the theological genre apologetics, remarks that will be brief and correspondingly shallow and sloppy. The term itself which in this context means defense, crops up in early Christian writings such as the first and second apology of Justin Martyr in the second century, and perhaps inspired by classical works like Plato's Apology. Early Christian apologetics often took the form of simply recounting what Christians in fact believed and did. You say we believe X when in fact we believe why. You say we do A, but in fact we do B. In an attempt to show the Christian belief and practice was not absurd or profane or subversive. So once Christianity becomes the dominant religion in the late ancient world, the need for such defenses seemed to diminish. No attack, no need for defense. Now in the Middle Ages, we do find works that seek to defend Christian claims, particularly uh, from criticisms from uh, Jewish and Islamic writers. Uh, Thomas Aquinas's De Rationibus Fidei would fit this description. Um, what many today would think of apologetics, however, a rational defense of the Christian faith, does not really appear on the scene until the modern era. And this is because it is in the modern era that we begin to have increasingly widespread attacks on Christianity carried out precisely in the name of reason. Beginning in the 17th century, apologetics became a kind of prelude to theology, establishing its rational credibility before proceeding to expound the faith. Particularly after the mid-19th century, this apologetic project is often carried out in the name of Thomism, even though this is not how Thomas himself typically goes about doing theology. Indeed, such, uh, such projects seem uh, in some ways to share considerable similarity of approach to the rationalist Enlightenment critics of Christianity themselves, of course, drawing different conclusions. Now, also in the 19th century, we see a different approach to apologetics emerging, uh, a, a, an approach that reflects the romantic reaction to the Enlightenment, what we might call the second wave of modernity, that, that movement that focused more on feeling and the yearnings of the human heart than it did on reason. The great Protestant progenitor of this approach is Friedrich Schleiermacher, whose speeches on religion to its cultured despisers, I think one of the all-time great theological titles, 
develops an approach to showing how what he calls religion, which is really more akin to what people today would call spirituality in the sense of I'm spiritual but not religious. It would be I'm religious but not fill in whatever actual religion you want. Um, So he, he tried to show how religion answered human yearnings and further how Christianity was the highest expression of religion. In Catholic circles, this general approach did not really gain much traction until the late 19th century, taking a form of dubious orthodoxy in such Catholic modernists as the English Jesuit George Terrell and a more orthodox form in the work of the French philosopher Maurice Blondel. For Blondel, there was a dynamism to human action that could only find fulfillment in revealed religion, in Christianity in particular, And the best defense of the Christian faith was not to be found in rationalist arguments for God's existence or the credibility of Christian claims, but in showing how in every human heart there was a wellspring of desire that only Christianity could satisfy. This approach became known in some circles as the way of imminence. Some people meant that as a good thing. Other people meant it as a bad thing. Now, recently... Thomas Joseph White, who some of you may know, uh, has argued that in the work of the French Jesuit Henri de Lubac, we find a particular inflection of this way of imminence, one that focuses on the human yearning for unity. In his programmatic 1938 work, Catholicism, the Social Sources of Dogma, de Lubac presents the Catholic faith as answering to a universal human desire for the unity of the human race. Father White points out that the claim that there is such a desire gained credibility from the fact that de Lubac wrote at, quote, a time when the West was overrun by urgent projects of social unity, fascism, communism, and nationalisms of various sorts. So de Lubac highlights the communal nature of Catholicism so as to present the church as a sign and cause of that unity of the human race for which people were manifestly yearning. This approach, which White labels inclusive triumphalism, found official expression at the Second Vatican Council, which taught that the church was a, quote, sacrament of the unity of the whole human race. Father White goes on to note, however, that such an approach faces new challenges today. As the move from the modern world, whether in its enlightenment or romantic modes, into what is widely described as the postmodern world, we can no longer assume that the human race is seeking unity. In his influential 1979 work, The Postmodern Condition, Jean-Francois Lyotard argued that the defining characteristic of postmodernity is what he called incredulity towards meta-narratives, by which he means, the, by meta-narrative, the, he means the attempt, whether grounded in universal reason or in universal feeling, to give a normative account of how the world is, to give a big story that can encompass everything that can tell us what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. With the loss of faith in reason and the rise of identity politics, 
We today face a situation in which projects of social unity are viewed with intense suspicion. Unity, it is thought, is inevitably bought at the price of particular identities and a constriction of individual freedom. To give you an example, we might think of the subtitle of the the English translation of de Lubac's book, Catholicism. In English, the subtitle, uh, which in French is the social sources of of dogma. Uh, In English, it is Christ and the common destiny of man. No doubt, many today would see in that collective persona, man, not a salutary unity, but an oppressive normativity that negates anyone who is not male or European or white or straight or cisgendered, a term I just learned last year. In such a cultural situation, appeals to the human desire for unity are likely to fall on deaf ears or even be violently rejected. Whatever the truth of de Lubac's presentation of Catholicism as a communal phenomenon, it fails as an apologetic if it cannot be heard by Christianity's contemporary cultured despisers. Finally, Father White concludes uh, by contrasting de Lubac's approach with that of the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. Balthasar's theology focuses on the particularity of Christian revelation as this is focused in the person of Jesus Christ. While not denying that the church answers a universal longing for unity, Balthasar's uh, apologetic strategy involves not arguing from the longing, uh, from that universal longing to the Christian faith, but of presenting Jesus as the one who awakens in us a sense of our own incompleteness by making present in highly particular form the universal fullness that is the divine life. For Balthazar, crucified love calls out to us and, and in a sense creates within us the space that it fills. Father White suggests that an adequate Catholic apologetic in our day involves a kind of dual strategy that incorporates the approaches both of de Lubac and von Balthasar, along, of course, with a healthy dose of Thomism so that appeals to natural reason are not ruled out of bounds. Now, I don't want to pursue further the particular strategy that Father White developed. Rather, I simply want to affirm that I find fairly convincing his account of where we find ourselves in terms of defense of the Christian faith. Appeals to the, quote, common destiny of man do not find much purchase and indeed repel many. Further, I want to claim that this postmodern condition did not emerge in the late 70s, to be chronicled by Leotard and others, but is a possibility latent within modernity itself and has been with us at least incipiently as long as modernity has. Flannery O'Connor, remember her? She's one of the talks about. Just to let you know, we're we're getting there. (laughs) Flannery O'Connor discerned this during the 1950s. She wrote to a friend in 1955, if you live today, you breathe in nihilism. I think it's really interesting because I think a lot of people look back to the mid-50s as some kind of golden age, right? Church was strong, parishes were full, schools were full, Ike was in the White House, you know, um, 
you know, but 1955, O'Connor, if you live today, you breathe in nihilism. In another letter to the same friend, referring to something written in The New Yorker, she writes, I sometimes still have this sense when I read The New Yorker, the moral sense has been bred out of certain sections of the population, like the wings have been bred off certain chickens to produce more white meat on them. This is a generation of wingless chickens, which I suppose is what Nietzsche meant when he said God was dead. Our culture has bred its middle-brow intelligentsia not to attain a supernatural end, but to be butchered for the market. And And it is this denial of an end proper to human beings that constitutes the death of God. Despite what might seem like her dim view of such wingless chickens, these are precisely the ones for whom she is writing. As she says in yet another letter to the same friend, my audience are the people who think God is dead. O'Connor was also prescient in seeing the consequences of having the moral sense bred out of human beings. Lacking faith, she writes, we govern by tenderness. Our chief concern is not pursuit of the good or the true or the beautiful, but not giving offense, respecting difference, avoiding imposition, at least in certain quarters. O'Connor is not, as some might think, opposed to tenderness. But she fears that what passes for tenderness is a tenderness, quote, a tenderness which, long since cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. Theoretical tenderness, respect for an abstract other, and his or her or their abstract rights can always absolve us from showing tenderness to the particular other who stands before us, who we can always sacrifice for the sake of theory. She says that this theoretical tenderness ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. We need think only of the destruction of life carried out in our own day in the name of justice and right and even compassion to come up with numerous examples, numerous examples of the kind of thing she had in mind. O'Connor populates her fiction with precisely the kind of tender wingless chickens who constitute her audience. But she also, and perhaps even more memorably, populates it with the rough and violent backwoods folk who would be unlikely to ever read one of her books, and so in that sense do not constitute her audience, but who believe in truth and goodness and beauty even when they are lying and being bad and acting ugly, as we said down in South Carolina. These wildfowl serve as foils to their domesticated modern chicken cousins, revealing their capacity, their captivity to the culture of ersatz tenderness. They do not typically themselves embody true tenderness. O'Connor's not that sentimental about rural people. She lived with them. Indeed, they're often quite wicked and cruel. O'Connor hated calls for Catholic authors to produce, quote, positive novels based on the church's fight for social justice or the liturgical revival or life in the seminary. Could you imagine a novel based on the liturgical revival? (laughs) She was, 
she was much more, it was so exciting. We, we then chanted some Gregorian chant. <laughs> um, anyway, she was much more interested in the encounter of wingless and wild chickens in which their respective perversities are mutually revealing. One such encounter can be found in her story, The Lame Shall Enter First. In this story, Shepard who is employed as a city recreational director, but who sees himself as something more like a combination of psychotherapist and social worker, seeks to save a juvenile delinquent named Rufus Johnson, whom he met while volunteering at the reformatory where Rufus was incarcerated. Shepard had been impressed with Rufus Johnson's intelligence, measured by his 140 IQ, number comes up a couple times, though he's dismayed that Rufus would seek to explain his antisocial actions by saying, Satan, he has me in his power, and he seeks to release Rufus from such superstitions. Shepard is convinced that Rufus's problems stem not from Satan, but from his club foot and his ill-fitting corrective boot, and that given the proper attention, Rufus would blossom into a productive member of society, perhaps even a scientist. In contrast, (coughs) Shepard has no such hope for his own 10-year-old son, Norton. Quote, Johnson has a capacity for real response and has been deprived of everything from birth. Norton is average or below and had every advantage. We see Norton through the eyes of his father, Shepard. The boy's future was written on his face. He would be a banker. No, worse, he would operate a small loan company. All he wanted for the child was that he be good and unselfish, and neither seemed likely. It emerges early in the story that Shepard's wife, Norton's mother, had died a year before. Norton, 10 years old, still dissolves into violent sobs at the thought of her while Shepard endures such displays, quote, helpless and miserable like a man lashed by some elemental force of nature. Shepard sees Norton's grief as just one more sign of his selfishness, his inability to feel anything for anyone other than himself. He sees himself, in contrast, both in his ability to master his grief over his wife's death and in his ability to see the objective superiority of Rufus Johnson to his own son as embodying a kind of enlightened, dispassionate goodness. This does not escape Rufus's notice, little does. After Shepard brings Rufus to live in their home, Rufus comments in outrage to Norton, God, kid, how do you stand it? He thinks he's Jesus Christ. As wicked as he is, Rufus is still outraged at Shepard's pretensions. Shepard buys Rufus a telescope, a symbolic gesture indicative of his desire for Rufus to lift his eyes to the stars. Rufus professes to have no interest in the material heavens, noting that when he dies, he will go to hell. Shepard responds to this with, quote, gentle ridicule, noting that Nobody has given any reliable evidence that there is a hell. Norton, however, is only concerned that his mother might be in hell. This is a new concept to him. Shepard assures him, 
Rufus is mistaken. Your mother isn't anywhere. She's not unhappy. She just isn't. When this only upsets Norton more, Shepard tells him, your mother's spirit lives on in other people, and it'll live on in you if you're good and generous like she was. Norton finds this reassurance utterly unconvincing. Norton would rather have his mother living in hell than just not be. Shepard eventually calls an end to the conversation, reflecting later that maybe talk about eternal reward and punishment wouldn't do Norton any harm. Quote, Norton was not bright enough to be damaged much. Heaven and hell were for the mediocre, and he was that, if anything. Eventually, Rufus wears Shepard down. He rejects the new corrective boot that Shepard buys him, a sign of his, rejected, his rejection of the new and improved life that Shepard wants to provide him. He continues his delinquent ways, and when the police bring him home one night, and incidentally Rufus tells the police that Shepard had been making immoral suggestions to him, Shepard tries to convince Rufus that he's not really evil but only confused and trying to make up for his foot. This drives Rufus into a rage. I lie and steal because I'm good at it. My foot don't have a thing to do with it. The lame shall enter first. The halt will be gathered together. When I get ready to be saved, Jesus will save me, not that lying, stinking atheist. At this point, Shepard is broken. He assures himself, I have nothing to reproach myself with. I did more for him than I did for my own child. But as he says these words, quote, his heart constricted with a repulsion for himself so clear and intense that he, that he gasped for breath, his image of himself shriveled until everything was black before him. As a rush of agonizing love for the child rushed over him like a transfusion of life, overwhelmed with the desire to make up his neglect of uh, to make his neglect up to Norton, he runs to his room only to find that he has hung himself in a search to find his mother beyond the veil of death. Now, beyond simply recounting this story, there's maybe perhaps not a lot more to say. O'Connor is hardly holding up Rufus, the one putative Christian in the story, as an exemplary figure. Rather, Rufus serves to highlight the, flaw, the flaws in Shepard. In a letter to Cecil Dawkins, she says that Shepard is, quote, the empty man who fills up his emptiness with good works. And she admits that unlike most of her characters, she doesn't like him all that much. And in some ways, Shepard is a bit flat as a character. But perhaps this is because he embodies one for whom goodness has been wholly reduced to a theory. When Norton tries to defend his father in the face of Rufus' criticism, saying, he's good, he helps people, Rufus replies, I don't care if he's good or not, he's not right. Shepard is one of those wingless chickens who seeks to govern by tenderness, not truth. His tenderness, however, is completely abstract. He turns Rufus, seemingly based solely on his score of 140 on the IQ test, into an ideal of the noble savage who only needs a bit of civilizing to make his native gifts blossom. 
Shepard seems incapable of seeing the truth of the flesh and blood human being before him. This kind of blindness, this lack of moral sense, is even more at work when Shepard looks at Norton, his own son. He can't see the child grieving for his mother, but only the disappointing offspring who fails to live up to Shepard's idea of what a son of his should be like. Shepard's compassion is never for concrete flesh and blood human beings, but only, only for abstractions. And he loses compassion for Rufus when he, by his repeated misdeeds, finally forces Shepard to see him as something more than an abstraction. So Shepard is perhaps a bit of a caricature, an example so extreme that O'Connor, his creator, can feel little sympathy for him. But there are other exemplary modern people in O'Connor's writings for whom she does evince more sympathy. The sullen Mary Grace in Revelation, the one-legged Holga in Good Country People, or poor Asbury in The Enduring Chill. But while she may be sympathetic, she is never sentimental. She never hides from us the smug sense of superiority of these people, though they may hide it from themselves. Yet despite the unsentimental gaze with which she views them, O'Connor rarely forgets the truth that those wingless chickens who think God is dead, who live their lives as nodes of desire caught up in a maelstrom of social and economic forces, whose compassion quivers a hair's breadth from genocide, are in fact created in the image and likeness of God and are called by their creator to eternal glory. The question is how to overcome the blindness that afflicts them. In a lecture, O'Connor contrasted the putative balance found in a writer like Dante with the sensibility of our own age. She said, We live now in an age which doubts both fact and value, which is swept this way and that by momentary convictions. And she says that in such a context, ordinary beauty does not suffice. There are ages when it is possible to woo the reader. There are others when something more drastic is necessary. Thus, we return to the large, startling figures with which we began. So... As a, as a final part of this talk, I want to offer some features of O'Connor's writing, some things that she brings out in her writing that I would argue constitute her postmodern apologetic. And what this might suggest for how we make a defense of the Christian faith today. First, as I have described, she saw her contemporary situation with clear eyes, at least in some respects. We all have our blind spots, as she herself knew. But she did not think that the world was filled with good-willed atheists who were Christian in everything but name and who were more or less on the lookout for divine grace. The effects of original sin are broad and deep. She once said that she was Jansenist in her sensibilities but not in her convictions. And when it is fallen human nature that you are dealing with, Grace only perfects nature by disrupting it. Jean Danielou once wrote, those who have seen farthest into human nature are all pessimists. 
like Augustine, Pascal, and Kierkegaard, and we might add O'Connor. The power of sin in the world is nothing new, but it does get inflected in new ways in the contemporary West. And if you're going to make a defense of the Christian faith, it's good to have some idea of who it is you're talking to. At the end of Christendom, we must confront the fact that we are not, as were the early Christian apologists, confronted simply by pagans. Rather, we're confronted by those who cling to deracinated shards of the Christian faith, ideas that are genuinely Christian, like equality and justice and compassion, but ideas that have become disconnected from the concrete truth of Jesus Christ. And these ruthless abstractions can turn deadly. Julian, in Everything That Rises Must Converge, seeks to teach his mother a lesson about racial justice and ends up causing her to have a stroke. Asbury, in The Enduring Chill, seeks to strike a blow for personal freedom and racial equality by drinking the unpasteurized milk with the black workers on his mother's dairy farm only to contract undulant fever, which confines him to bed for the rest of his life. In some sense, frank paganism would be easier to deal with than this deracinated set of Christian convictions. But second, and this is important to realize, lest we begin to get smug, O'Connor's pessimism is not restricted to the secular world. Those who bear the name Christian are also pretty immune to the gentle workings of God's grace, and they too require a sometimes deadly whack in the head in order to get the message. As Alice Walker notes, O'Connor perceived that not much has been learned by Jesus's death by crucifixion, and that it is only by his continual repeated dying touching one's own life in a direct, searing way that the meaning of that original loss is pressed into the heart of the individual. The grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find can recognize her common humanity with the escaped convict known as the misfit only when she is staring down the barrel of his gun in the moment before he shoots her. As he famously says, she would have been a good woman if there had been someone there to shoot her every day of her life. Mr. Head can only admit his depravity in abandoning his grandson in a strange city when they are confronted together by a lawn jockey, and if you don't know what a lawn jockey is, you can Google it, uh, that somehow mysteriously represents the suffering both of Christ and of African Americans. Ruby Turpin in Revelation must get hit in the head with a textbook entitled Human Development while in the doctor's waiting room before she begins to realize that her putative virtues will not save her. We might be tempted to think O'Connor reserves her pessimism for Protestant Christians, who are the believers who feature most prominently in her stories. But but, but for O'Connor, Catholics are not exempt. The silly Catholic schoolgirls in A Temple of the Holy Ghost, O'Connor's only story, I think, in which Catholics are the central characters, offer a good example of how someone can have all the right answers and still get things wrong. She noted to a friend, it seems to be a fact that you have to suffer as much from the church as for it. As Augustine said, once you begin to follow Christ by conforming your life to his commandments, you will find many to contradict you, forbid you, or dissuade you, 
And some of these will be people calling themselves followers of Christ. Third, O'Connor suggests that in this particular moment, when we seek to defend Christianity from both its cultured despisers and from the smug pretensions of Christians themselves, narrative becomes a particularly important apologetic genre. If we live in an age of abstractions in which terms like justice and equality and compassion float free from any larger vision of the good, when we can only love the other in the abstract while overlooking the one who stands before us, then perhaps it is only the concrete particularity that narrative offers that can administer the shock needed to reground goodness in truth. Leotard characterizes postmodernity as incredulity towards metanarratives. If this is the case, then we're in a situation in which we, we seek to speak to people who are blind and deaf to the grand story of creation and redemption. O'Connor does not suggest that we give up on that grand story, but that we create an opening for it by means of stories that are maybe less grand but which contain within themselves the explosive potential to crack open postmodern complacency. Her own fiction, rooted in the concrete particularity of the mid-20th century South, sought to open up, as she put it, the possibility of reading a small history in a universal light. That's what she wants to offer to the culture of nihilism to read a small history in a universal light. Only such particularity can reroute the free-floating fragments of faith that still drift through the postmodern world. She said, abstractions, formulas, laws will not do here. We have to have stories. It takes a story to make a story. Which returns us to Father White's suggestion that in a world that finds appeals to the universal at best incredible and at worst pernicious, refocusing on the person of Jesus and the particularities of his story as uh, this has been lived out for two millennia in the church may present the most credible apologetic option. O'Connor wrote, our response to life is different if we have been taught only a definition of faith than it is if we have trembled with Abraham as he held the knife over Isaac. Both of these kinds of knowledge are necessary, but in the last four or five centuries, we in the church have overemphasized the abstract and consequently impoverished our imagination and our capacity for prophetic insight. So a recovery of such prophetic insight and the capacity to convey it to tell again the terrifying, disturbing, hilarious, large and startling story of Jesus may be our best apologetic hope. Finally, O'Connor reminds us of the importance of hope. However pessimistic O'Connor may have been about both Christians and modern post-Christians, she was not, at the end of the day, a pessimist. The sheer violence manifest in many of her stories is a witness to how the disruptive grace of God could crash through any barrier that human beings might, might erect. 
And we ought not forget just how funny O'Connor's stories are. Her vision is, at the end of the day, comic and not tragic. And even though her pessimism did not stop at the gates of Rome, she still saw in the church a resource for hope. Of course, this was a chastened hope, what I might call an Augustinian hope, that was rooted not in the goodness of individual Catholics, but in Christ's promise and in the presence of holiness in the sacraments. She wrote in a letter to a friend, quote, I think the church is the only thing that is going to make the terrible world we are coming to endurable. The only thing that makes the church endurable is that it is somehow the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. I like that, somehow, somehow. I, I don't know, I don't see it, but somehow I believe it. O'Connor's conviction about the church's Christ body takes perhaps its most powerful form in her story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost, in which the silly Catholic schoolgirls, while visiting a relative on holiday from school, sneak into a freak show at the fair, and they see a hermaphrodite on display there who speaks to the audience and warns them not to laugh because God has made it this way. They recount this to their younger relative whom they are visiting, and in the child's mind, she imagines the freak speaking as if at a revival meeting, proclaiming, a temple of God is a holy thing, amen, amen, I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. Later, taking the girls back to their boarding school, the child and her mother joined them in the chapel for benediction. And as the child looks at the host and the monstrance, she thinks of the hermaphrodite, the freak, the monster. Driving home, she looks at the setting sun, quote, a huge red ball like an elevated host drenched in blood, which saturates the horizon with its redness. O'Connor wrote to a friend that a temple of the Holy Ghost all revolves around purity which, she said, strikes me as the most mysterious of the virtues. She also notes that many people had no idea what she was saying when she said this story was about purity. It seemed to be about anything but purity. The juxtaposition of the monstrous body of the hermaphrodite put on display at the fair and the Eucharistic body of Christ displayed on the altar is certainly shocking. One reader from Boston wrote to inform O'Connor that she was herself a Catholic and didn't know why anyone could even have such thoughts. But it suggests that for O'Connor, the purity of the church as the body of Christ is not a matter of being a neat enclave with tightly policed borders, but was the purity of the freak who is put on display to be mocked, but who also bears witness through its shocking presence in the world, and especially its acceptance of suffering. Could it be, O'Connor suggests, or I suggest O'Connor suggests, could it be that only some such shocking, freakish form of existence could draw the attention of a world satisfied with its own tenderness? Perhaps, even more than narrative, we need embodied lives of freakish compassion, concrete acts of tenderness 
rooted in the truth of Christ and his sacrificial love, in order to shock and startle by making visible the folly of the cross. Maybe the, defense, maybe the best defense is giving good offense. Thank you. So, so now we're, so we're going to start Q&A. Um, if you have a question, please just raise your hand, and I'll bring the mic over to you. Do you think that... Uh, if centuries from now our culture were to become less nihilistic and more like the culture at the time of Dante, would Flannery O'Connor's writing still be valued even though she was shouting and drawing startling figures when she didn't need to be? I'm, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I suppose um, in, in teaching O'Connor in such a culture, it would be a little bit like trying to teach Dante in this culture, Right. I mean, I, I teach Dante, and my students want to know, why is Dante so mean? Why is he putting, you know, all these people were basically good people. Why are they in hell? Why is purgatory such a drag? Wait, but these people in purgatory are suffering. Why do they say they're happy? And then, boy, heaven seems boring. You just sit around in that rose all day. Like, you know, you, you kind of have to give them a context that they can begin to appreciate Dante in. So I think O'Connor would probably lose some of the immediacy uh, of her effect. Um, but I also think, I think the writing is just extraordinarily great. It's not, it's, it's the great thing about O'Connor is it's not really about ideas. Um, uh, she, she said once that uh, I'm trying to remember how she put it. She said that uh, she only barely dips her fingers into ideas the way that apparently Samuel Johnson had a blind maid who, when she was filling his teacup would stick her finger, like just in the cup so she could feel when the tea Rose. So she's, O'Connor didn't think of herself. I mean, I've kind of presented her as a, as a writer of ideas, but she didn't think of herself as a writer of ideas. Um, she thought of herself as somebody who created stories and characters. And I think those stories and characters in the quality of the writing, the characterization uh, could carry her even into maybe a, a less nihilistic age. Um, but you might have to explain, you might have to do some explaining. Rather, following along the lines of the previous question, you know, the 50s were a time of um, conformity, and people were well-behaved and well-mannered, and she, and, and she makes fun of those people, and they're right. kind of the, the villains, in a sense, in her, in her stories. Well, we don't really live in that America today. I mean, most people are actually sort of rude and, you know, disordered, and um, so I'm kind of wondering, you know, in a sense, has the time passed her? I mean, to present, you know, people with a sense of propriety and manners as... As bad, I mean, that's kind of the opposite direction we should go in in some way. Um, well, like I said, we've certainly undergone certain kind of cultural shifts. Um, and, I mean, frankly, uh, I mean, as an example of this, the, the thing that um, uh, makes O'Connor most difficult to teach today is the racial language, right? Um, uh, you know, there's certain racial epithets that characters use, and... Uh, in O'Connor's context, she was not presuming that her... She, I mean, it was sort of like when I was growing up. You heard somebody use that kind of language. You thought they were kind of low class, but you didn't think that they were kind of wicked to the core. And I think the students I teach to today, that, that's a marker of them being wicked to the core. And it kind of flattens out their reading of the stories. Characters who are supposed to be somewhat ambiguous um, become completely evil, Right. 
so this is all to say that I, I think maybe some of the, the codes of politeness have changed. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's good that certain racial epithets are, are, are beyond the pale now. Um, but I do think that we still have a kind of a culture of politeness, um, uh, at least in certain – I mean, in some ways it's really interesting. I mean, I think you have this kind of cu- a culture of, of politeness among a certain social class and people who are not part of that social class kind of violently rejecting that uh, that kind of politeness, you know, political correctness and, you know uh, – and I think in some ways it's kind of reproducing some of the dynamic in O'Connor stories themselves, right? You know, uh, you have, you know, the Rufus Johnson, who in a sense is rejecting the political correctness of Shepard. So in some ways I think there's still that dynamic going on. Wonderful talk. Was there any connection or correspondence between O'Connor and Faulkner? Well, she certainly read Faulkner. I'm not aware of any actual correspondence. I mean, I've read all the letters. Um, I wasn't kind of on the lookout for Faulkner. I mean, she certainly read Faulkner, and she writes about Faulkner in some of her nonfiction prose. Um, She has several essays on what it means to be a regional writer, you know. uh, And for her, it was part of that love of particularity. She didn't mind being a regional writer. In fact, she thought that the best writers were regional writers, um, and she even said the Southern writers are particularly – the particular gift of Southern writers is writing about freaks because they retained enough of a notion of human nature to recognize a freak when they saw one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so she certainly saw herself as in some ways a kindred spirit with Faulkner, but I don't know of any actual interchange between them. Now, she did have contact with, with Walker Percy. Um, in fact, uh, Paul Ely has a, has a really uh, uh, interesting – what would we call it, multi-biography, multiography, I don't know, but of, uh, of Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, O'Connor, and Walker Percy as kind of four Catholic intellectuals in mid, mid-20th century and who are all in interesting ways connected with each other. Um, let's see. Uh, behind you. Just. Thanks. Uh, you described yourself as a hillbilly Thomist in one of your books, uh, Faith, yeah. Reason, and Following Christ, um, and I was struck by that. And I was sort of curious uh, what you meant by that, and, and the talk was sort of about this, but like more broadly, right? how your interest in literature and theology developed in the intersection between those. Yeah, well, so, so the term actually is, is one that is, uh, as near as I know, is coined by Flannery O'Connor. She Talked about, I believe she went on a television show to be interviewed after her novel Wise Blood was published. And I mean, Wise Blood is a, uh, I mean, I think most people think O'Connor was a better short story writer than a novelist. Um, but Wise Blood is a really fascinating read because it uses all of these modernist literary techniques. I mean, you can see, you know, she's influenced by Henry James and, and even by Proust. And she uses these kind of fragmented narratives and shifting perspectives, all these very kind of classically modernist techniques. Um, but she was being interviewed about her novel Wise Blood, and she said, well, I read the reviews, and people seem to think, like, I'm an atheist, that I'm some sort of hillbilly nihilist. But in fact, I'm a hillbilly Thomist. So, so that's, where the, that's where the term comes from. And I, I kind of um, uh, you use the term, I guess, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, as would be fitting for anything taken from Flannery O'Connor. Um, but um, 
I guess uh, what I would say is that in my own theological work, I in some ways try and uh, combine this in some odd way the, the theology of Thomas Aquinas um, and his his emphasis on the goodness of creation and and nature perfected by grace with O'Connor's emphasis on the disruptive character of grace. And this is uh, 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 the article Father Father Schneider mentioned is, is where I where I kind of try to actually do that. Um, uh, because a lot of times when you say grace perfects nature, it's sort of like it's it's taken either as saying, uh, well, okay, we've got this nice foundation of nature and we're just going to build some grace on it. Or it could be taken as meaning, hey, everything's cool. Everything's headed towards grace, right? Um, and what I like about O'Connor, and I don't think this is untrue to St. Thomas, what I like about O'Connor is how at least in certain contexts, when grace appears in the world, it has a profoundly disrupting and disorienting effect. And it, it just seems to me that that's, it's probably true in any time, but I think in, in what uh, the recently uh, passed uh, Robert Jensen called a world that's lost its story. Uh, in a world that's lost its story, it's gonna do that even more. Um, I don't know if that's helpful. Following off the, the first couple of questions, I think that one of the things that's interesting is that uh, the large and startling figures now almost seem the opposite of what they once would have been. The large and startling figure now seems like it would be the normal or the, the virtuous or the, the opposite of the freak, because the freak has almost become the normal now. Like that last point you made about the Southern author made me think about this, that the Southern author can recognize a freak. I think that you teach, you teach like do your students recognize freaks um it's a good question uh of course you what you have to remember is o'connor thinks freaks are good she likes freaks right precisely because they have this unsettling i mean christ was a freak right um uh so i mean my students are just incredibly conformist uh, they're, uh, you know, I mean, they, they're head, headed for Wall Street if they can get there, you know. Uh, I mean, they're just un- unbelievably conformed. They would think all of you are freaks for coming out and doing this on, on a, ever. <laughs> I was going to say on a, on, a, on a weeknight, weekend. No, no, ever coming out and doing this. I mean, this is like a room full of freaks, right? Um, and particularly the guys in robes, you know. <laughs> I mean... Talk about large, startling figures. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, so, I mean, yes, certain things that used to be considered beyond the pale are now considered well within the pale, and things that were well within the pale is, are, are now considered outside the pale. But what I, what I love about her story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost, is how she presents the body of Christ as a, as a body with no pale. Nothing is beyond the pale of the body of Christ. Not the silly Catholic schoolgirls who sing Tantamergo Sacramentum to embarrass these hillbilly boys who come by to try and take them out on a date. You know, not the hermaphrodite, not the little girl who's like filled with, with smug pride and arrogance. You know, none of those for O'Connor is, are, are beyond the pale. So I think, yeah, maybe what's beyond the pale has shifted, but I think O'Connor's issue is more like, no, the body of Christ has to be much much more permeable than that, right? So I don't know if I was subconsciously favoring this side or... 
Thank you I'm so much tanded, for so. your uh, talk. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm curious as to why the um, the experience of startling beauty is not um, not I guess pos it's not possible to shake someone out of out of their nihilistic um, worldview. I was thinking it doesn't have to be you know reading the symposium or sort of having an experience of abstract beauty, but um, why do you think that it's not possible for uh, a nihilist to maybe go up to a, a fantastic basilica and experience the the beauty there, or maybe maybe experience the beauty of um, uh, the newborn child, person or so, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and also, I have a smaller question. Do you think that Flannery O'Connor is translatable into other languages? Uh, well, I'll ask the, I'll answer the second one, one first. Um, actually, one of, one of my friends who found her completely off-putting until she read the le uh, letters is actually a Belgian. And I think some of it was what was difficult to translate was not the words but the culture. Um, and I think somehow reading O'Connor's letters kind of gave context to the story so that she could begin. And she's now a huge fan. She actually gave a paper in Rome on Flannery O'Connor. So, um, so I think it's I think it's in theory translatable, but it would be. I mean, there, there'd be there's a lot of cultural translation that needs to take place, and there even is now. I mean, like when she writes a Temple of the Holy Ghost, she can talk about the, you know, the the devotion of benediction, and uh, you know, presume that at least her Catholic readers and probably a lot of her non-Catholic readers would have some idea what it was. I have to show a video to my students, you know. I mean, some of them, but not many. So you know, so there is a kind of a cultural translation I think that needs to needs to go on. Um, but again, I also think I think the writing is so sublime. I I. You know, I, I hate to do this to people. I would almost want to say, look, just learn English and read it in English. <laughs> uh, uh, I hate when people do that to me. Oh, you should read this in the original Hebrew. It's like, look, I don't have time to read the Hebrew. <laughs> um, uh, to, your, to your second question, I think it's a really, actually a really excellent question. And O'Connor herself, and, and maybe she was just being too pessimistic here, she seemed to feel that the modern world was increasingly immune to the lure of beauty. Um, and I think partly she had, and she's very influenced by Jacques Maritain um, and his book Art and Scholasticism and, and the kind of development of, of a Thomistic notion of beauty where it's things like proportion and clarity um, that, that are the, the characteristics of, of beauty and she just felt the modern world had no sense of proportion or clarity, that that was, that was lost, um, that everything was sort of atomized and individualized. And if you don't have things coming into conjunction, you can't really – there's no such thing as a beautiful atom, right? Um, or maybe a beautiful atom, but no beautiful subatomic particle, right? I mean, nothing isolated in itself. You know, it's, it's the conjunction of things that, that generates beauty. Um, and in an atomized culture, I think she, she felt that beauty had, had, lost, its, had lost its lure. I, I think maybe she would have, maybe she's been, she's, she's being a little too pessimistic there. Um, I mean, I do think it's interesting that the way in which, you know, what philosophers call the sublime in modern art is often, you know, uh, is often presented in terms of actual, you know, great ugliness. I mean, I think, I think something like Picasso's Guernica uh, reflects a very similar sensibility to O'Connor, um, and she's very she's she's very modernist in that way, right? I mean, you know, 
Picasso said, look at the modern, look at, look at what happened in Guernica. I can't convey this with beauty. I've got to convey it with horror, right? And, you know, it's, you know, she, she died, you know, in 1965, you know, uh, and the, the memory of the second world war was still very vivid to people. And, you know, I think maybe she just felt like, you know, beauty didn't do it. Germany was a culture that produced incredible beauty, right? In, in music and in literature, not so much in painting, but, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and look what they did. So I think she was maybe, she, she felt like maybe beauty's day had come and gone and could come again, but it was not today. So, well, thank you all very much. It was a great question. Thank you, Professor Bauerschmidt, for your wonderful lecture. I'm Elizabeth Winston. I'm the Director of Development here at the CIC, and I just want to thank you all for coming. Um, we've got a number of great events lined up for the fall, so be sure to check out our website at CICDC.org to learn more about them. Um, especially tomorrow night, we have Daniel Matson. He'll be speaking about his new, newest book, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. And the second part of tonight's series will be on October 16th at 6 p.m., so be sure to mark your calendars, and thanks again.